We are currently about 12 to 13% above the October lows. That means we have another 30% to go to get to that average return timeframe by October, 2023. So if history, if this pattern holds, this precedent holds, then what we're talking about here is the stock market could be in a position to, from March, 2023 to October, 2023, seven months, rally about 20 to 30%. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what is up this week? Uh, what's up, man? What's up this week? It's a uh, it's a choppy week, but a good week. Seeing lots of positive signals out of the market. Seeing lots of positive signals out of growth stocks, tech stocks. Um, very optimistic about the next two months. Very optimistic about the next twelve months. And I think that we are climbing a wall of worry right now. Bull markets are born on pessimism. We have pessimism. I think bull markets being born. So I honestly could not be more excited about stocks over the next 12 months than I am today. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about one topic, AI. This week, I want to kind of shift gears and instead of cover, instead cover a wide variety of topics in a short kind of rapid fire fashion. And today, I want to start with the macro backdrop. You know, stocks bounced strongly off some critical technical levels last week, and you're calling this the start of a big short-term burst higher in stocks in March and April. You're also saying mm-hmm. that this bounce is proof that the stock market rally we've had off the October lows is a new bull market and not just another bear market rally. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us why you believe these two things? Right. So there are three elements to the bull thesis. You got the fundamentals, you got the technicals, and you got uh, positioning. So let's start with fundamentals. Um, A lot of people are worried about the... The 10-year Treasury yield climbing to 4%. A lot of people are worried about inflation. A lot of people are worried about the Fed hiking rates. A lot of people are worried about the economy slowing. Um, but the reality is, is that all of these trends are actually shifting course in a favorable direction for risk assets for the equity market. Um, so inflation is coming down. Yes, it's a choppy come down. The first three, four months were rapid. And then we had a slowdown in, in January, um, maybe another slowdown in, in February. But the fact of the matter is, as we talked about, you know, in previous podcasts, inflation cycles are long term in nature. Uh, when it goes up, it goes up. When inflation goes up, it goes up for several quarters and oftentimes several years. When it goes down, it goes down for several quarters and oftentimes several years. The average major disinflationary cycle of the past hundred years has been over two years long. 
during those disinflation cycles, you have bumps in the road. You have, again, like you said in previous podcasts, for every six months, six to seven months of disinflation, you tend to get one month of reinflation. Every major disinflationary cycle of the past hundred years has had reinflation months. You've never gotten a immaculate disinflation cycle. Inflation comes down three, four, five, six, seven months, and then comes back one to two months, then goes down three, six. That that's how disinflation works. And the fact of the matter is, every time you get reinflation, it never actually breaks that disinflation trend. So, the the prevailing trend right now is disinflation. We are coming down on inflation rates, and we will continue to come down on inflation rates for a few reasons. One, basic math: the laps are going to get a lot harder. We've been lapping against four or five percent inflation. We're going to start lapping against seven, eight, nine percent inflation as we get into the summer. It's much harder to put up big inflation year over year numbers when the lap is seven, eight, nine percent than when it's four or five percent. So um, we're going to see inflation come down naturally because the lap gets easier. Base effects is what they call it. So. You're going to get that. That's going to help push inflation lower. Economic activity is definitely slowing. Consumer spending is definitely slowing. We heard it from a lot of retailers over the past few weeks. The consumer is slowing down. So demand is waning. And then three, perhaps the most important thing here is supply chain, supply chain, supply chains. Supply chain bottlenecks from COVID pandemic are pretty much all gone. The, the economy locked down. It took us two years to get fully back to normal on the supply chain basis. But now we are fully back to normal. The New York Fed's global supply Supply chain pressure index is basically back to pre-pandemic levels, and it's definitely going to back, get back to pre-pandemic levels, and not fall below pre-pandemic levels in 2023 because China's reopening. China is 30% of global production; it's 30% of the world supply chain, basically. So yes, them reopening is going to add demand into the fold, but it's going to add more supply. They're 18% of demand, 30% of supply. That's a net 12-point addition to the supply side. So supply chains are back to normal. Demand's normalizing, supply's normalizing, you get harder laps, the Fed's hiking rates, all this says the disinflation trend that we've seen over the past six months is going to continue over the next six, 12, 18 months, probably well into 2024 and even in 2025. I think we go back to 2%. As we travel back to 2%, stocks are going to move higher. So that that's kind of the first big thing here with, with the uh, the stock market and, and why I believe we are in a renewable market, because the big problem of 2022, inflation is now rolling over and solving itself and it's solving itself without the economy collapsing. The consumer remains pretty strong. Yes, they're slowing, but they're not dying because the labor market is still pretty strong. They have jobs, they have incomes. So the consumer, and they still have a lot of savings from the pandemic. So the consumer is still pretty healthy. The consumer is 70% of the US economy. If the consumer remains healthy, the US economy is going to remain healthy. And if the, if the consumer has been able to take 450 basis points of hiking over the past 12 months about, then, you know, that's a pretty strong consumer. I don't see their back breaking anytime soon. Um, the, the leading indicators of employment, they're weakening a little bit, but where they're weakening is in the the high income sectors of the, of the economy. So, you know, Facebook is planning thousands more job cuts in the next few weeks. Those are folks that make $150,000 or more per year. They're very highly trained. They're going to be able to find work elsewhere. Maybe not at that high of a clip, but a little bit lower salary. They'll be fine. They'll be they'll land on their feet. So the labor market is not weakening in a way that implies that the economy is going to collapse. So I believe we are in the boat of a soft landing or in, we're going to get a soft landing. And then the Fed, they're a bit of a wild card here, but the Fed does not want to kill the economy. 
And the Fed understands that inflation is coming down. Powell said as much that this inflation process has begun. So I believe the Fed is going to continue to move nice and slowly, very nice and slowly over the next few months and guide this economy into, into a soft landing in 2023. So I, I really like the, the macroeconomic fundamental outlook for stocks right now. When you look at sort of the valuation basis, one of the big tenets of the Bayer thesis is that with 10-year treasury yields so high, P multiples have to come in. The equity risk premium is as low as it's been in, in several years. Equity risk premium being the spread between the forward earnings yield on the S&P 500 and the 10-year treasury yield. But when you look at the math there, I did a huge analysis on this, you know, last week. When you look at the math there, that's true. That the spread between the forward earnings yield on the S&P 500 and the 10-year Treasury yield is as narrow as it's been in, I think, about eight or nine years. True. But equity risk premiums tend to fluctuate with Treasury yields. Treasury yields are also as high as they've been since 2007, pretty much. When treasury yields move higher, the equity risk premium moves lower. It's a very strong correlation. So the equity risk premium actually fluctuates with treasury yields. The higher treasury yields go, the lower the equity, equity risk premium goes. So right now, we're at about a 4% 10-year treasury yield. When treasury yields are between 4%, the 10 years between 4% and 4.5%, the average equity risk premium in the market, the spread between the S&P 500's forward earnings yield and the 10-year treasury yield is about 125 basis points, 1.25%. We're at about 150 basis points right now. And that's the average ERP spread back in 1990. So, and then when earnings are still strong, Earnings, um, when earning the earnings outlook deteriorates significantly, then ERPs tend to spike because people get really concerned about the ability for companies to grow earnings. But earnings are still pretty strong. We just got through an earnings season that was pretty good. So when earnings are stable or rising, and when treasury yields are above four percent or between four and four and a half percent, the average equity risk premium in the market going back to 1990 is about 1 1.25, 1 1.5, 1.6%. And that's pretty much exactly where we are right now. So stocks actually are not fundamentally overvalued. P multiples, in, in my opinion, should be about, if I do the math on it, the 4% 10 year with 150%, um, 1.5% ERP, that's a five or uh, that's a 5.5% forward earnings yield on the S&P 500, which equates to a P multiple about 17 and a half times. The uh, 2024 earnings estimates right around uh, 250. You put a 17 and a half times on 250, and you get to about 4,400 on a price target for the S&P 500 by the end of this year. We're around 4,000 right now, so that's another 400 points to go, 400 handles to go. So I think that the fundamentals actually look pretty strong. So that's one of the reasons that I'm very bullish on, on stocks. The macroeconomic trends are shifting in favor of supporting stocks, and the fundamentals suggest, earnings and P multiples suggest, that stocks have room to rally over the next 10 months, nine months. Point number two is technicals. So as you said, we held the 200-day moving average last week, very strong support. We held the uptrend line from the October rally, very strong support. And we bounced off the resistance line that has been the ceiling for stocks throughout the 2022 bear market. Whenever you turn resistance into support, that means a trend reversal is underway. We turned this year-long resistance in stocks into support. That is supremely bullish. We are now, we have closed above the 200-day moving average for, I think, 
30 consecutive days or 31 consecutive days, we've never closed above the 200-day moving average for more than 30 days, and the stock market went on to make new lows. Now, every time the stock market wasn't a bear market, bounced above its 200-day, and then stayed above that 200-day for 20, 25, 30 days, the stock market went higher. It never rolled over and went and made new lows. Never, never, ever, ever, ever. So that's a very bullish technical factor. Another bullish technical factor we talked about in previous podcasts is the triple barrel buy signal that we got in January, January 12th, I believe it was, the second Thursday of, of the year. That's when you got the breakaway momentum thrust indicator, the Whaley breadth thrust indicator, and the triple 70 breadth thrust indicator, all of which are very ultra rare, ultra predictive, and ultra powerful buying bullish thrust signals in the market. All three flashed on the same day for the first time ever, triple barrel buy signal. Before, we've gotten double barrel buy signals where two of those three flashed on the same day. Now, what happens normally when you get a double or triple barrel buy signal like that, stocks tend to rally a bit and then retreat and then explode higher. Every single time stocks were higher three months later, six months later, nine months later, and 12 months later. But they always had choppiness in the first two months. In fact, they normally pull back about six to seven percent in the first one to two months because in order to get such strong buy signals, double barrel, triple buy signals, where multiple ultra powerful breath thrust signals are getting triggered, in order to have that, you have to have a lot of buying pressure. When you have a lot of buying pressure, stocks tend to get overbought in the near term. When stocks get overbought in the near term, they tend to sell off a bit. So what post behavior, the post triple double barrel buy signal behavior in stocks is, is one to two months of, two months of choppiness, about a six to 7% pullback, and then the explode higher phase. And then you rally, you know, either 10, 20, 30, 40% into the end of the year. That's what history says should happen. Well, we're tracking history. We got that end of month rally in January. Then we got a 6.7% pullback in February from high to low. And now we're bouncing up again as we enter the third month. We're now actually we're two months past that, um, past that uh, triple barrel buy signal. But we're getting into that second, third month, which is the explode higher phase. So the technicals all look very, very strong. Another big one here is the number of new highs on the New York Stock Exchange. So we track this number, net new highs, which is the number of new highs, individual stocks making new 52-week highs on the New York Stock Exchange, minus the number of stocks making new 52-week lows on the New York Stock Exchange. We call it net new highs. When net new highs starts to consistently be positive, that is usually a sign of a regime shift from a bear market to a bull market. And indeed, over since January, we've seen net new highs become consistently and strongly positive. Indeed, the 20-week moving average of net new highs in the New York Stock Exchange has peaked into positive territory for the first time in this bear market cycle. Whenever that historically happens, we go from a long period of negative net new highs, and then we inflect higher where the 20-week moving average turns positive on net new highs, that is a regime shift. That is when bear markets turn into bull markets. The technicals look supremely bullish. And then the third thing here is positioning. And this is why I'm super bullish on stocks going into March and April. And I know I've said a lot over the past few minutes. It's a mouthful, but trust me, this is very important information. <laughs> so now we're going into March and April. We're in March. And I'm really bullish on the positioning because we are, in my perspective, from a positioning perspective, back to where we were in the October lows. So in the October lows, that's when the 10-year Treasury yield burst above 4%. 
that's when the futures market started pricing out rate cuts. So basically, the futures market started saying there's going to be zero rate cuts by the end of 2024. And that's when inflation expectations were getting pretty hot. We are exactly there today. The 10-year Treasury yield has spiked above 4%. Futures market is back to pricing in zero rate cut expectations for 2024. And actually, as of today, they're now 60% odds the Fed goes 50 basis points in the March meeting. So peak hawkish um, Fed expectations. And inflation expectations, as judged by the um, the futures market, are also rising to levels that we haven't seen since those October lows. That gets me pretty bullish. Because what it tells me is that expectations positioning is at a level that leaves a lot of room for upside surprises. Treasury yields are pretty maxed out above 4%. There's a lot of room for them to fall, not a lot of room for them to rise. Fed expectations are at peak hawkishness with people calling for 50 basis points in March and zero rate cuts in 2024. There's a lot of room for the Fed to surprise the dovish side, not a lot of room for them to surprise on the hawkish side. Looking at inflation, inflation expectations have for June 2023 have moved back up to 3%, above 3%. That leaves a lot of room for downside and bullish surprises on inflation, not a lot of room for upside bearer surprises on inflation. So I like where we are in terms of an expectations and positioning perspective. It makes me think that in March and April, the data we're going to get, there's a good chance of surprises to the bullish side and a very small chance of surprises to the bearish side. Now, considering that those expectations have moved to peak bearishness, yet stocks are holding well above their October lows, yet another sign we are in a new bull market. So overall, I know, again, that was a lot of information, but fundamentally, (laughs) technically, and call it expectations-based, position-based, the stock market looks very, 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 very strong right now. One of the phrases I used with my subscribers last week is, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's true for the stock market. What doesn't kill the stock market makes the stock market stronger. The stock market dealt with a lot of blows and punches in February. A ton of them. Hot CPI, hot PPI, hot PCE, hawkish Fed, Fed expectations moving higher, Treasury yields soaring. Yet through it all, the stock market didn't die. It took some punches, got hit a little bit, but then bounced back up. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill the stock market makes it stronger. If the stock market didn't die in February with all those punches being landed on it, it's not going to die. This is a very strong market that is ready to power higher. That's my two cents. Again, mouthful. I know I'm sorry for going on and on and on there with word diarrhea, but I think it's very important for investors to know that because, 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 because here's the so what. The average returns for the stock market 12 months after a bear market bottom or 45%. And they're actually like 43.6% or something like that, but about 45%. So stocks, if you have a bear market and they bottom over the next 12 months, they tend to rally 45 freaking percent, 45% in 12 months. We are currently about 12 to 13% above the October lows. That means we have another 30% to go to get to that average return time frame by October 2023. So if history, if this pattern holds, this precedent holds, 
then what we're talking about here is the stock market could be in a position to, from March 2023 to October 2023, seven months, rally about 20 to 30%. That's a huge return in a short amount of time. And that's why all this stuff matters. That's why I'm trying to be as thorough as possible and explaining why I really, truly, strongly believe, have high conviction in saying that a new bull market is being born because fortunes are made when bear markets turn into bull markets. And if we are indeed in that transition right now, there is a lot of money to be made in the stock market today. Well, I know I appreciate the thoroughness of that answer, even though it kind of defeated the rapid fire succession that I was trying to do. So oh, let's pivot yeah. real quick. <laughs> let's pivot real quick to EVs. Um, looks like trouble is in paradise in the industry right now. Lucid, Rivian, and ChargePoint all reported subpar earnings. Tesla is cutting prices again. Should we be worried about EV stocks? Yeah, you know, definitely there, there, is, there is trouble in paradise in the electric vehicle industry. You are 100% right. But I actually think that this is a good buying opportunity because I see... EV battery metal prices, let's just call them battery metal prices because not just electric vehicles use lithium batteries, the energy stores use them as well. So just call them battery metal prices are declining significantly. Lithium prices have entered a huge drawback. Um, cobalt prices are in the midst of a huge drawback. Magnesium prices in a huge drawback. Um, copper prices, uh, copper's not really used, but uh, in a huge drawback. So I'm looking at these um, these metals and I'm seeing massive declines in the input cost for electric vehicle makers. One of the huge reasons that EV stocks have been struggling is because EV battery metal prices have been so, so high. These companies have been having to ri- uh, raise and raise and raise and raise and raise and raise and raise their prices, which is diluted to demand, of course. Tesla kicked things off with a trend reversal by announcing a bunch of price cuts. They're continuing those price cuts. And they're doing that because I think they see the writing on the wall. These battery metal prices are coming down and we can lead the industry with price cuts. So I actually think over the next 12 months, the input costs for electric vehicle makers are going to fall, which is going to allow these EV makers to reduce their prices, which is going to be stimulative demand. Yet it's not going to be corrosive to margins because the input costs are falling and these EV makers are going to be smart enough to cut prices by less than their input costs are falling. So that's probably going to be additive to margins. The net result, in my opinion, is going to be when you look at the EV financials, you look at a company like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, I think you're going to see upside surprises on their revenues. And I think you're going to see upside surprises on their margins and upside surprises on their profits. I think those upside surprises allow these stocks to move higher over the next 12 months, not to mention a lot of manufacturing for these cars, a lot of manufacturing for these batteries is done in China. And China is reopening 30% of global supply, about 80% of global EV making. So when China fully reopens, as it fully reopens in 2023, a lot of supply chain bottlenecks that are still still plaguing EV makers like Lucid and Rivian are going to dramatically improve. As those dramatically improve, so should the production rates of these companies, so should the sales rates of these companies, and so should the margins because the more product they move, the more they get to benefit from economies of scale and the more that's beneficial to margins. So yes, it's trouble in paradise in the electric vehicle industry right now, but I think it's trouble in paradise because of lagging factors and not leading factors. And I actually think the leading factors here are pretty bullish. So I would be a buyer on uh, of EV stocks on recent weakness. I think there is good upside in those names over the next 12 months. Okay. Uh, that's your take on EVs, but how should we be feeling about clean energy stocks right now? 
You've talked about how your favorite energy storage stock, Fluence, was rolling over, and it has. Uh, But it's showing some strength again. Is it time to get bullish on these clean energy stocks? Right. Uh, I think I think so. Yes, I think yes, because uh, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, EIA, uh, just came out yesterday with a new report that said 83 percent of all new utility grade power capacity uh, in the United States will be renewable in 2023 Um, will be wind, high uh, wind, solar or batteries. So. That's. That's significant. More than 80% of all new utility grade power capacity coming online in 2023 will be wind, solar, or batteries. To be sure, only about 20% of total installed capacity, utility grade installed power capacity today is renewable. But if 80% of the new stuff coming online is renewable, and that trend continues another 80% in 2024, another 80% in 2025, then the total 20% number uh, for renewables is gonna move up to 25 and 30 and 35 and 40 and 45 and 50. So I see these things on a very upward trajectory that is going to continue and sustain for a lot longer. When I look at some of the stocks, they do look fully valued and phase looks pretty richly valued. But when you look at a company like Fluence, it's in the very beginning of its massive secular growth narrative in this space as a very critical component of the movement, providing battery energy storage to make these things work, be actually be reliable on a 24-7 basis. And that's a stock that I think does have a ton of upside potential. Yes, technically it broke out, topped out, rolled over. Now, like you said, it shows some strength and is bouncing back. That uptrend is still very much alive. Very, very, very much alive. So I really like Fluence here. I like the solar names. I like the wind names. I like the energy storage names. I think that this is just, this is a secular investment theme. Okay, this is not something. Buy them in twenty twenty three. Buy them in twenty two. Buy them in twenty one. No, buy them in twenty any time in the twenty twenties and hold them <laughs> in the twenty thirties. These are things that are going. I mean, the entire energy grid in the United States and globally is being significantly redefined. It's being reshaped. And it's being reshaped by these technologies. So by the leading companies doing that reshaping and hold them for several years, they're secular compounders, long-term compounders. Fluence is probably my favorite name in the space. It's it is showing short-term technical strength now too. So yeah, I, I think it's a good time to buy these stocks. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, here's one we haven't talked about in a while: 3D printing. Uh, one of your favorite 3D printing stocks, Desktop Metal, uh, reported earnings last week, and the stock is flying higher. Is it time to start paying attention to these stocks again? Um, yes, yes. I uh, So Desktop Metal, um, they're flying higher not really because of something that is a demand tailwind, um, more their their cost rationalization plans are working way better than anybody expected. Their profit margins are improving way more than anyone expected. Their net losses are narrowing much faster than anyone expected. And it's a company that's going to peak into profitability pretty soon. So that's more of a cost rationalization story that's going on there. And I think that, yeah, I think it is a good time to buy this metal stock. I think that one has a lot of runway. It's very cheap down here. They got great technology in the space and the cost rationalization is working to improve profitability. So I think the stock can go higher. Um, but on a broader kind of zooming out and looking at the whole 3D printing space in general. Yeah, I think it's a really good time to buy 3D printing stocks because 3D printing added manufacturing, it is a cost efficient, it provides cost efficiencies. And that's what companies are looking for these days. And a lot of the desktop metal conference call is about that. It's okay, companies aren't altogether stopping their spend right now. They're tightening their belts. 
And when they tighten their belts, they're still spending but looking to spend only or primarily on things that allow them to be more efficient, be more nimble, save costs, save time, whatever it may be, just be more efficient. 3D printing fits into that wheelhouse so nicely because 3D printers can produce things much more efficiently, much more quickly, much more cheaply than a lot of other, you know, production types and even more quickly than people. Um, one of the prime examples of this is in the housing sector. A company called Icon is 3D printing a bunch of homes. They're 3D printing homes very quickly, very cheaply, and it's it's happening uh, in, in Texas and it's happening in the Northeast. And people are buying these homes and living in these homes and uh, renting them out for Airbnbs and stuff like that. And it's very, it's very cool. This is a, a way for us to fix the housing shortage. It's a very novel technology for us to fix the housing shortage. So I do believe the market is starting to realize, okay, 3D printing fits in this wheelhouse of technologies that improve operational efficiency. And technologies that fit into that wheelhouse are technologies that are going to see very strong demand over the next three, six, nine, twelve months. And those stocks, in my opinion, should be the leaders of, of this new bull market. So I do think 3D printing stocks should be on people's radars right now. All right. Uh, how about those energy drinks? Uh, last week, we had a viewer <laughs> ask about Celsius stock ahead of earnings. The company did report earnings and the stock popped in response, uh, but has since given back some of those gains. Uh, how should we think about Celsius stock here? Right. So Celsius on a short term basis, is it's very... It's very richly valued. It's valued for perfection. It's priced for perfection. The growth narrative there is slowing. So top line revenue growth rates. And one of the big things about the company is that you were seeing revenue growth rates accelerate every quarter. Plus 60%, plus 70%, plus 80%, plus 90%, plus 100%. That was happening every single quarter. Now that's not happening. Now the growth rates are slowing. They come from 120 to 100 to 80 to 70. So you're now starting to see the slowdown. You're on the other side of that growth acceleration hump. That's not positive for the short-term basis. Um, and quarters that, er, revenues actually decline quarter over quarter sequentially. So another thing when you look at hyper growth firms like this is you want to see revenues rise every single quarter. You want to see positive sequential growth. We didn't see that last quarter. First time we didn't see that in the cycle. So there are some signs that the growth narrative here is slowing. Momentum is slowing in Celsius, but it's slowing to still very impressive rates. I mean, revenues rose 70% year over year last quarter. That that's that's still amazing growth, you know? So there is a slowdown, but things still look great. What that means to me is okay, this stock needs to settle down in this area, consolidate a bit, let the fundamentals catch up to the valuation, let the growth rates stabilize and normalize. So we're not going to sustain it 100% year over year forever. We're going to come down to 80, 70, 60, 50, maybe allow them to stabilize around 40 to 50, and then reaccelerate a little bit. And that's when the stock can take its next leg higher. But I would say Celsius stock is it's kind of on timeout. It's on break. Like, let it let it relax. It's been a massive winner. It's come a long way in a short time. Let it chill out for a bit now, and then let it take its next leg higher. I think the fundamental story there is still very strong. Consumers are shifting to more to healthier energy drinks, and Celsius is the brand leader in that. I think they developed a very strong competitive network, uh, especially through their new Pepsi distribution partnership. So I really think that that, that, um, that company is, is a long-term winner. The stock just needs to consolidate here in the short term before taking its next leg higher. And that could take, you know, three to six months. Okay. Uh, housing check-in still bullish on the housing market rebound for 2023. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So for me, um, housing is, is rate dependent, obviously, 
Um, and it's only a matter of time before the housing market does have a massive rebound as rates come down and that activates, stimulates a bunch of that sideline demand. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of potential for, for housing prices in the housing market to rebound in 2023. Um, right now, you're seeing that rebound get put on hold because rates are rising. But interestingly enough, today, you know, there is that hawkish speech by Powell. Uh, and yet the treasury yield, uh, long-term treasury yields actually declined. The 10-year spiked from 3.95 to 4 and then came all the way back down to 3.95. So treasury yields feel maxed out here. That means mortgage rates are maxed out here. I think the trend of mortgage rates over the next nine months is going to be lower. And if that is the case, the lower those go, the more demand will be stimulated on the sidelines. That'll come back into the market. You still have a housing shortage. You still have low inventory. That means that uh, you're going to get pretty fast sales, pretty competitive bidding more and prices will probably move higher. So I remain very optimistic about a housing market rebound in 2023. Okay. Uh, consumer check-in. Uh, Home Depot, Walmart, Target, they're all talking about a slowing consumer right now. Should we mm -hmm. avoid consumer stocks at the current moment? Right. So we talk about this. The consumer is slowing, but they're still healthy. They're still very healthy. People have jobs. People have good incomes. People have a lot of savings from the pandemic and even before. Again, what people don't really realize about a lot of these things is that what happened during COVID simply accelerated trends or exacerbated trends that were already in place since the great financial crisis. The personal savings rate in the United States was consistently above normal from 2009 to 2019. So for 10 straight years, the American consumer was saving more than normal every single quarter. And then in 2020, their savings rate soared. So yes, their savings rate has since collapsed and is now below normal, but two to three quarters of below normal savings rates does not compensate or obliterate the fact that you had 12 years, 11 years of significantly above normal savings rates, consumers have a lot of cash in the bank. They have, they're sitting on a lot of money. And, you know, home prices, yes, they flatlined and have actually declined since the summer of 2022. But again, a lot of people bought homes in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, throughout the 2010s, they're sitting on massive uh, value appreciation in their homes. They're feeling pretty wealthy there. Yes, stocks had a bear market in 2022, but stocks are still up significantly from, you know, the 2020 lows from 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016. So people are feeling a lot of value appreciation there. The consumer still feels pretty good. They still feel pretty strong. And so I think that's a consumer that is still going to travel. That's a consumer that is still going to renovate. That's a consumer that is still going to buy a car. That's still a consumer that's going to buy a fridge. It's going to buy a TV. That's a, this is a consumer that's still going to spend. And so I think that you don't want to chase consumer stocks, but if consumer stocks start collapsing, like the consumer is going to die, you got to buy that fear. Get greedy when others are fearful and there's blood on the streets. I think consumer stocks are well positioned in 2023, 2024. Because I think consumers are well positioned in 2023 and 2024. They're getting pinched, but they're not getting destroyed. And I think that that is a, a nice middle ground to buy consumer stocks when they get cheap enough. Right now, I don't think they're cheap enough. A name like Walmart. Target Home Depot because they actually had some pretty big bounces in January and even in December and in November. But I think if this narrative of the consumer weakening does 
persist, then they will get cheap enough. And at that point in time, you will want to buy those stocks, especially the discretionary ones, you know, like the, the apparel stocks, um, uh, fitness stocks. I think stocks like that have some pretty big upside potential um, if we do get a consumer driven sell off in the next, you know, one to two months. Okay. Uh, how about an oil check-in? Oil prices appear to be stuck in this 70 to $80 range and oil and gas stocks appear to be stuck in neutral too. So what's the next move in these names? Yeah. Oil and gas, is it, it's stuck in that 70 to 80 range, right? I mean, we popped to 120. People said it's going to 200. Joke. That didn't happen. <laughs> collapsed. And then we've collapsed. And then I feel like every single month since we've collapsed, which is, you know, it's been like, you know, we've been stuck in the 70 to 80 range for several months now. It seems like every single week I'm hearing somebody saying oil is going to go to 120, 140, 150. Um, the, the people calling for 200 are now quiet. But um, <laughs> I, I, I just I don't it, it, what's going to do it. What's gonna, I mean, it was supposed to be Biden stopping, you know, stopping the SPR drain, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve drain. We've slowed the SPR drain. He hasn't stopped it, but he slowed it. That hasn't that hasn't really caused oil prices to soar. Then it was going to be re-escalation of, of Russia, Ukraine. Things are definitely re-escalating over there. Oil prices haven't popped sustainably above 80. Uh, okay, so that's not going to do it. Oh, China reopening. Of course, China coming back online. That's going to definitely send oil up. China's reopening, and all of the China economic data is very strong and very bullish. The recent round of economic data out there is as good as it could possibly be. The reopening is going as well as it could possibly go. Oil prices are at 77 right now, so that didn't do it. So what's going to do it? What's going to send oil to 120? I mean, all the all these claims that China reopening is going to send it to 100. It didn't, okay. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, re-escalation is going to send it to 100. It didn't, okay. Um, the SPR, you know, the, the, the stoppage of, of draining the SPR is going to send it to 100. It didn't, okay. So, so what's going to send it? To 100, right? It's kind of like we talk about it at the top of this podcast. Um, if the stock market didn't break because of hot CPI, hot PPI, hot PC, hot is fed, then what's going to break it? Like if those things didn't break it, what is going to break it? Here's the corollary. If all of these things have happened to oil and it still didn't spark an oil spike, oil price spike, then what is going to? What What is it waiting for? And the reality to me is that there were a lot of pundits out there and articles out there and, and um, people saying that in 2022 that the Fed can't control oil prices, but they can. The Fed is much more powerful than anybody gives them credit for. Much more powerful. It is because of the Fed that all of these things that people are saying uh, have not caused oil prices to spike. Why did China reopening not cause it to go to 100? Why did um, Russia, Ukraine re-escalation not cause it to go to 100. Why did you know a slowdown in the SPR drain not cause it to go to 100? Because the Fed is keeping their foot on the pedal, and the Fed is continuing to slow the economy, and the Fed will continue to slow the economy until inflation gets back to two percent. And a big part of inflation getting back to two percent is oil not going to 100. The Fed is not going to let oil get to 100. Get to 110, get to 120. They're just not going to let that happen. So I think we're stuck in a range, like you said, but we're not going to break out to the upside of that range in the foreseeable future because of the Fed. The Fed is very, very powerful. Do not underestimate their power. When I look at oil and gas stocks, energy stocks, look at the XLE, 
that is so clearly forming a topping pattern. I don't know how people could get really bullish on energy stocks here. It is so, I mean, it, it's topped out of that $92 level, $93, $94 level so many times now. It goes up there, hits, hits its head, drops down. Goes up, hits its head, drops down. Goes up, hits its head, drops down. And that's a level that it topped out in, you know, previous oil site, oil market, bull market highs. The, the, the 2014, back to 2008, 2009, 2007, um, that is where it topped out. And we're at that level again. So if, if you look at that chart, I didn't even know what it was. You didn't tell me what it was. I said, Luke, look at this chart. I'd be like, it's topping and it, it's ready to come down. So I, I don't see the bull thesis on, on oil and gas stocks right here. I think so long as the Fed remains an enemy of economic expansion, it's tough to get bullish on oil, which needs economic expansion to move higher. So I, I yeah, I'm, I'm not, not there on, on the oil thesis, oil bull thesis. So do we stay in this range? We're obviously, according to you, not going to break above, but do we break below? Uh, yeah, so that's the thing is that breaking below would require, in my opinion, a pretty big risk. Well, it's going to cause – something's going to have to break. Either the Russia-Ukraine thing gets resolved. That would cause a break below. Chances of that happening pretty slim, in my opinion, in 2023. Um, the China reopening completely fumbles or starts to slow down significantly. That could happen. That could happen. I'm not saying it won't. It could, but I'm not. I don't think I'm not assigning a greater fifty percent chance of that happening. Um, Biden accelerates the drain of the SPR. Probably not. You know that the SPR drain rate that we're doing right now is is working to keep oil and gas prices low. So no reason to actually accelerate it um, when you're already running low on inventory in there. So those, none of those things are going to break. And then the other thing that could break is the Fed sending the economy to recession. As we talked about at the top of this podcast, I think the Fed is engineering masterfully a soft landing here. I don't think they're going to send the economy to recession. So absent that, I, I don't think we break below to like 60 or 50. I think we kind of just tread water in the 70 to 80 range. Maybe we come down to the $60 range of 65. I think that seems very doable, but I don't think we have a collapse to like 50 or 40 or 30, like we saw in some of the previous oil bear markets. Um, I think we're, we're pretty stable in a 50 to $70 range. I think that's 50 to $80 range. I think that's probably a very wide range in which oil will, uh, will stabilize over the next few years. Okay. Um, Moving on, I know that one of your favorite ideas for 2023 is that self-driving cars will finally arrive. Does that mean that you think self-driving uh, self car stocks will soar in 2023? And if so, give us at least one name that you're bullish on for this year. Yeah, okay, great. So yeah, self-driving, I'm very bullish on self-driving. You're right. Because I think this is the year that self-driving cars, which have been a long uh, promise for a very long time, are going to become a reality. Um, we're seeing self-driving or ride-hailing services in Phoenix and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Houston. We're seeing autonomous delivery in all those cities as well. We're seeing um, autonomous trucks running real routes throughout Texas and throughout Arizona. Um, so we're, we're seeing these things happen. And then in the new lineup of cars that will be announced in 2023 and, and launch in late 23, early 24, um, from Volvo, from Mercedes, from Volkswagen, they're, they're going to have much more robust autonomous driving capabilities. A lot of those cars are going to include LiDAR. You're going to see the first kind of lineup of automotive LiDAR um, 
or LIDAR equipped autos in, in late 23, early 24, that's going to significantly accelerate the self-driving reality. So I think you're in a position right now where self-driving is kind of like right at the cusp of a major inflection point into real world growth. And that gets you really bullish on the stocks because when I look at a lot of the, the self-driving stocks, the high quality ones, that is, they've been smashed in the growth stock, you know, destruction of 2022. They're trading at very discounted levels if they have some very major upside catalysts on the horizon. You know, one of them you asked for a name is Luminar, you know, ticker is Laser, L-A-Z-R. That's a, that's a company, that's a stock that I think got to 40 bucks at one point in time and then dropped all the way to about three or $4. And now it's come bouncing back a little bit, has some technical strength here. So this is a stock that is still very much wiped out, trading at a very cheap valuation that just won a multi-billion dollar contract expansion with Mercedes-Benz to the details of the contract expansion win are, are scant. But what it appears uh, like is that every single... Uh, Mercedes car with autonomous driving capabilities or semi-autonomous driving capabilities starting in either 2024 or 2025 will have Luminar LiDAR equipped. So Luminar is going to be standardized across all Mercedes models. That's what this partnership kind of sets the groundwork for, sets the framework for. So Luminar is getting standardized over there. Luminar is being installed in the 2024 Volvo, is it EC90 or EX90? I'm terrible with car names. <laughs> But it's Volvo's, you know, premium seven-seater electric vehicle. That's going to have Luminar LiDAR. I think Luminar is, is working their way to be standardized in all Volvo vehicles. So when you look at that, a company like Luminar, destroyed, cheap valuation, about to be standardized in all Mercedes cars, about to be standardized in all Volvo cars, has a big deal with Nissan, has a big deal with, with uh, SAIC in China, there's some major upside catalysts for this stock over the next 12 to 24 months. I think that's a name that, that can really soar. And it's not alone. There are a lot of other self-driving stock names out there that I think have a lot of upside potential over the next few uh, few quarters because they're super cheap ahead of some major upside catalysts. And um, I would get constructive on those stocks at these levels. But my favorite is, is probably Luminar. Okay. Um, I want to wrap things up this week with a very interesting idea that you've been talking about recently. Honestly, it's new to me too. And it's this idea of quote peak people. Uh, can you dive into that idea and what it means for stocks? Yeah. Peak people is a really interesting thing. So, um, it kind of started. So I'm, I'm 27 years old. Um, my wife's 25. And we have two kids and we are the only, only people in our extended friend groups that have children. And so our friend groups are range, you know, age from 23 to, to 35 and nobody else has kids. I mean, maybe one couple here and one couple there, but pretty much nobody else has kids. And when you talk to these people and you know, you know, their life stories, like, like my wife and I do, um, it's like, they're not even close to having kids. They don't even have a significant other in, in their life right now. They're not even thinking about, you know, having kids, thinking about buying a home, thinking about um, kind of settling down. That, that, that's not something that is a theme among people in my social circle 
right now. In my social circle, I, I'm not saying that it's representative of, of the world, but it got me thinking that I was like, okay, we're at an age now, you know, these, some of these guys are college buddies of mine, you know, at that age in time, or at that point in time, you're not obviously thinking about it, but you know, you get up to 27, 28, 29, 30, and you start, you know, this is an age where maybe you should start. I don't want to use the word should, cause there is no correct way in life, but if you're gonna have kids, this is, this is a point in time where you start maybe thinking about it, or you start maybe thinking about saving money for it. You start maybe thinking about, you know, who's going to be that your, your partner in that, your significant other, um, and that's not where ninety percent of the people I know are in my in my age in my age group, and so that got me thinking: Is that representative of the world, or is or my friends just weirdos? <laughs> I started looking at it, and I started talking to a lot of other people, and realizing, okay, there, there's a stat out there that something like 40% of people between the ages of 25 and 35 don't own a home. Okay. Interesting. There's another stat out there that something like 33 or 34% of uh, people under the age of 30 are having their parents pay for some of their bills, mostly including their rent. Okay. So basically one third to one half of people in the age of 20 to 35, let's call it, are one, don't own a home, and two, still reliant on, on mommy and daddy for, for income needs, for, for expenses, for paying expenses. That's not a situation you're going to be in if you're thinking about starting a family, really. Um, and so... There are a lot of estimates out there that call for population growth to decline in the coming years, that we've reached peak population growth. But I think those estimates are conservative and wrong. I think we are actually close to peak population, not peak population growth. The growth rate of people in the world is going to slow. No, I think we're close to peak people. We are close to the number of people on planet Earth being maxed out and declining over the next several decades. I, I think this is a secular trend that's taking shape right now. You, we're seeing China. China is seeing its population decline. In Japan, the number of people that died last year outnumbered the people born last year two to one. So you're seeing these trends play out overseas, and I think you're starting to see it play out in, in America. Birth rates are falling. Marriage rates are falling. Divorce rates are climbing. Um, and then when you look at my generation, again, you're seeing a bunch of people just spend money like crazy on experiences, traveling to the Bahamas, traveling to Tulum, Mexico, traveling to New York City, traveling to Europe, traveling to Cairo to see the pyramids, traveling to Japan, China. You're, you're seeing people in my generation spend every single last dime on experiences and they love those experiences and I don't think they want to give them up. When I talk to people, I, you know, I want to keep traveling. I want to keep doing my thing. I want to keep, you know, I, I don't want to settle down. The American dream in the 1950s and 60s was to settle down with a white picket fence and a home and, and mow your lawn every Saturday morning, read the newspaper and take the kids to a ball game. That, that's not it anymore. Now it's jet setting and living this, this travel lifestyle. And I think we're in the midst of a big generational shift. And I think it's huge that we are close to peak 
people. I don't think as many people in my generation are going to have kids as people in the previous generation. I think the drop off is going to be significant. Will it continue in the generation beyond that? I don't know. But what we do, what my generation does, the 20-somethings to the 30-somethings do over the next five to 10 years is going to determine whether or not we're at peak people or not. What I'm saying is the trends I'm observing and the statistics I'm looking at suggest to me that what that generation is going to do is have kids at a significantly lesser rate than their parents, which is going to lead to a peak people situation. What does that mean for the global economy? What does it mean for stocks? Well, one of the baseline kind of inputs of any economic model is that you can assume GDP is going to rise, global GDP, national GDP is going to rise by 2 to 3% per year because the number of people in the world is going to rise by 2 to 3% per year. That's just like a baseline assumption. The more people you have, the more demand you have, you know, just going to rise with, with, with the number of people uh, growing. So if you remove that 2 to 3% and it becomes 1% or 0% or even negative, then you have to remove all baseline assumptions and all economic models that GDP is just going to grow by 2% per year on average over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's, you have to remove that assumption. The second big thing here is that you're going to lose a lot of the labor market. So another thing that we really rely on is that as the number of people grows, that grows the labor market, we can have more workers to do more things to achieve more economic gain. That's not going to be true anymore. If, the, if we are peak people and the labor market stagnates or shrinks, then we are not going to have enough workers to fulfill the work needs of companies. And you're seeing that already in the labor market today in the United States labor market. People are just baffled at how there are so many job openings, yet the economy is slowing dramatically. It's because there's a massive labor shortage. You can blame COVID, blame the pandemic, blame people with the long COVID or whatever, and they don't want to go back to work. No, I think we're over all that stuff. I think really you have a structural shortage. You have a, a huge generation of baby boomers that were great workers, worked their entire lives, and now they're ready for retirement, and they're not being filled by people in my generation because there's not enough people. And so I think that it's a massive structural labor shortage that will persist and even worsen in the, in the coming years. All of this sounds very doomsday. I get it. I'm telling you, you can't assume the global economy is going to grow by 2% per year anymore. And we're going to have a labor shortage forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That sounds very doomsday. I get it. But humans always find solutions. They innovate. They create they solve, they fix, and they move forward. And that's what they're going to do here. And guess what the solution is? <laughs> Artificial intelligence, AI, <laughs> automation, <laughs> programming, software, robots. Do not fear this revolution. It is what is going to allow us to sustain our way of life. Because if we are indeed at peak people, and we can't assume that we're going to grow the labor force by 2% every year going forward, that means we're going to have a structural shortage in labor for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. This is not a post-COVID thing. This is a new normal thing. So how do, we, how do we fill that? Well, you fill it with robots. You fill it with AI. You fill it with automation. You fill it with software. And in so doing, you allow the economy to continue to grow at 2%, 3% per year, if not more, without adding extra cost into the system, without adding extra labor costs into the system. So what you do actually is you create a world, a world economy that continues to grow at 2% per year, but doesn't have any inflationary pressures. 
because you're not growing the labor cost by 2% per year too. And this is why, zooming out big picture, I think all of these worries about inflation in 2022 and 2023 are the silliest things ever if you're a long-term investor. Because the secular trends here are massively, and I mean massively, deflationary. Massively. Population growth is declining significantly, and population may start to plateau if not decline too. Hugely deflationary. The things that can replace the lost labor pool are automation technologies and AI, neither of which require labor or uh, uh, compensation, labor compensation. That's hugely deflationary. So when I look at the world and I zoom out from the 2022-2023 crisis and look at the 2020s-2030s from a megatrend perspective, I see massive deflationary forces at work, not inflationary forces, massive deflationary forces at work. And peak people, if indeed that is a thing, and I'm, I'm right about that, which I am going out on a limb here, so I'm not saying I'm 100% right about this, but I think I think I may be onto something here. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> but if we are indeed at or near peak people, that is so bullish for the economy and so bullish for stocks because it means we are going to unleash a new wave of productivity through automation and AI without destroying the labor market. We are going to find harmony and that's going to allow us to create so much profit. And I'm very, very excited about where that could go over the next five to 10 years. But that's why I'm really kind of diving into um, peak people and what it means for, for the global economy. Because I think it could have serious economic and uh, market implications. Okay. Well, definitely something that we're going to be paying attention to over the next years, I guess. Um, but that covers all our topics. But we do have a few fan questions this week, starting with Sterling Campbell. Luke, what is your favorite football, American football team? My favorite American football team. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, that's a question. Um, I'm going to have to go with an, a San Diego people. Please don't, don't hate me. Um, but I, I still am I'm a Chargers fan. Despite, despite them leaving us and uh, the city tearing down Qualcomm Stadium, which was a terrible stadium, but a good, <laughs> terrible stadium, if that makes sense. It's like that old house that you're like, ah, you know, I don't know why I like this ever, but it has that, that feeling of home. Um, yeah, that, that was Qualcomm Stadium. They tore that down and the Chargers left us. But I have some good memories rooting for um, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, Ladinian Tomlinson, Darren Sproles. Small guy that was fast as could be, uh, Antonio <laughs> Gates. Those th those are my teams growing up. So I I'm still a Chargers fan. Not as much as I used to be. You know I still have a little little salty taste, but uh, I am I'm a Chargers fan. That's my NFL team. All right, uh, and then our next question from Rohit Jagia. I hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, can you talk a little bit about U.S. debt and how that's impacting the market right now? Oh, uh, yeah. Great question. Um, there's really no right answer here, but I can give you my theory um, because it's it's an unsolved problem. Uh, my theory is that it's not something that you should be thinking about or all that worried about because uh, think of the U.S. as a company. If a company has a lot of debt, that debt really only matters if the company stops producing. Uh, so long as the company produces and continues to generate economic growth, continues to generate profits, continues to uh, uh, deliver 
then that debt doesn't matter. Case in point, Netflix, right? Netflix ran up a huge debt to develop and produce a ton of original content in the 2010s. Um, and it didn't matter at all for the stock price or for the growth of the company because the company was growing. That original content was being produced and attracting a bunch of users and they were able to hike prices and the whole growth flywheel worked. So the debt load didn't matter. So long as a company produces, delivers, and grows, how much debt it has in the balance sheet is not really all that relevant because they're able to service that debt with the profits they generate from their growth. The U.S. economy, it's no different. It's just a giant company. Specifically, it's a giant conglomerate of a bunch of companies. So long as the U.S. economy continues to grow and deliver, my opinion is that the amount of debt it carries is not all that relevant. It would be relevant if interest rates really spiked significantly. And when I mean significantly, I mean not to 4.5% or 5%. I mean the 10%, 12%, 13%. Then we're talking about different issues because the servicing costs of that debt go ginormous. But the Fed knows that. Central banks around the world know that. ECB knows that. Uh, BOE knows that. And that's part of the reason why they're not going to get too aggressive on this rate hike cycle because they don't want to blow up their own economy. So um, that's not going to happen. In the absence of interest rates charging to 10%, then the servicing costs on that debt remain sustainably low enough that it, to, you know, in my opinion, doesn't really matter. The U.S. economy is going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. If you don't believe that, if you are negative or pessimistic on the U.S. economy's long-term prospects, then you need to be worried about the debt load. I'm not. I believe in America. I believe in the people here. I believe in the companies here. I believe in what we're doing is, is, is good stuff. And regardless of who's president or who's in the White House or who controls what side of the chamber, all that political garbage, I don't care about that. It doesn't, doesn't matter who's doing what. What matters is the people of America continue to build great companies that provide great products and services that the rest of the world buys, and they generate enormous amounts of profit by selling those products and services. And so long as all of that remains true, then the U.S. economy will continue to grow and expand. And the debt load, in my opinion, is not something that should be factored into any real calculation of, of economic prospects or of market prospects or anything like that. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap? Oh, peak people, peak people, peak people. Thanks for bringing that up. I uh, kind of forgot that I had talked about that, but I, I think it's a really interesting twist on uh, economic theory has been built on the assumption that the world population will keep growing. And if that assumption changes, then a lot of things change. And I think people have to start thinking about that, not really factoring it into their decisions quite yet. I think we're still a ways off, but start thinking about thinking about it, to quote the Fed. We're thinking about thinking about rate hikes back in late 2021 <laughs> before they hiked rates as aggressively as ever. But in any event, um, yeah, I think you got to start thinking about thinking about it. Um, it, it's, it's, it has huge implications. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in the comment section. We love to hear any feedback on topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will be right back with you here next week. Until then, bye, all. <laughs>